0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Living with Eosinophilic Esophagitis, Recognizing the Burden on Patients and Integrating Targeted Therapy to Improve Outcomes. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash BJF 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome, everyone to this evening's
1: session. My name is Mirna Shehadi. I'm professor of pediatrics and medicine at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where I'm also the director of the Mount Sinai Center for Eosinophilic Disorders in New York City. And joining me today is Dr. Seema Aceves, professor of pediatrics and medicine at the University of California, and director of the Eosinophilic GI Disorders Clinic at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. So today's session, as you can see on the screen, is on living with eosinophilic esophagitis, recognizing the burden on patients, and integrating targeted therapy to improve outcomes. Tonight's agenda will um, include two sections. The first section, which will be presented by me, which is recognizing the burden of EOE on patients and their families and my colleague, Dr. Esevis will go over understanding the rationale for targeted treatment of EOE. We will also have a symposium summary and your Q&A. Each session will feature a patient and caregiver video clip and their story of living with EOE. Please be prepared to answer follow-up questions throughout the program. Starting with recognizing the burden of EOE on patients and their families... The science behind the story. The prevalence of EOE has been increasing worldwide. And to illustrate this, I'm referring you here to a graph that was drafted by my colleagues, Dr. Delon and Dr. Ihirano that show you over time the increasing prevalence of EOE almost throughout the world. This is because both the incidence and the prevalence had been increasing over the years, Although we have recent data from Jensen and colleagues telling us that the incidence of EOE may be tapering now and becoming more steady uh, over the last few years, especially in the pediatric population. The prevalence of EOE is currently estimated at 0.5 to 1 per 1,000 individuals. Now, you may think that this number is really small. However, we know that many of the patients remain undiagnosed or have a delay in diagnosis. In fact, if we look at the delay in diagnosis, we do see that it is common. In a systematic review that was conducted by Shaheen and colleagues, they found that the time between symptom onset of EOE and diagnosis ranged from 1.2 to 3.5 years in children and 3 to 8 years in adults. And this was the case for all different age groups. In fact, in a study that um, was a multi-center Study that we uh, performed as part of the Consortium for Food Allergy Research, which included 705 patients with EOE aged six months to 65 years, we found that the median time from symptom onset to the diagnosis was four years in adults, two years in patients 11 to 17 years of age, and one year in children less than 11 years of age. Interestingly, the presence of food allergy and atopic dermatitis was associated with a faster diagnosis and was also more common in younger populations. Reasons for delay in diagnosis are multiple, one of which is that patients with EOE sometimes present with non-specific symptoms. And these symptoms also vary across age groups. So if we look at symptoms in infants and children... They mostly consist of reflux-like symptoms, vomiting and nausea, abdominal pain, food refusal is also common, especially in the very young children, and failure to thrive. Failure to thrive can be present in up to 30% of children with eosinophilic esophagitis. Adults and adolescents now mostly have the typical esophageal presentation of esophageal dysphagia and esophageal food impaction. Although many also can have non-specific presentations such as substernal chest pain which is typically refractory to antacid therapy and they could also have reflux-like symptoms including heartburn and regurgitation where they go on proton pump inhibitor one after another and their diagnosis is delayed. So if we look at all these symptoms in one graph to put them all together Noel and colleagues did that almost 20 years ago now, where you could see on the x-axis age in years and on the y-axis are the symptoms. When you're dealing with um, very young children, the predominant symptom is feeding disorder. Older children have vomiting and abdominal pain, and then teenagers and adults have dysphagia and esophageal food impaction. Please note that this is a cross-sectional study. This is not the longitudinal follow-up of these children over time, as this has not been studied thoroughly yet. Now, it's very important to keep in mind that in all age groups, pediatric as well as adults, patients do follow behavioral feeding modifications in order to reduce the severity of their dysphagia and to prevent esophageal food impactions. And these can be summarized in the acronym IMPACT, which EcoHirano has um, uh, created so what they typically do is they imbibe their, uh, imbibe food with fluids to facilitate the passage of solid food. They modify foods by cutting them into small pieces or pureeing them. They have prolonged meal times, so they're the ones typically are the last ones to get off the table. That's not because they're talking, but because they're eating. And they also avoid harder texture foods. They tend to chew excessively their food before they swallow it and they do turn away pills and tablets. So take-home messages from this can be summarized into three components. Number one, patients should be queried adapt about these behavioral feeding modifications so that um, you do not miss the diagnosis when you are looking for symptoms of dysphagia. Number two, would patients not only avoid harder textured foods such as meat, In those that consume meat, but also they avoid lumpy foods, such as bagels, hard, uh, dense breads, or pancakes. So it's important to ask about these um, uh, symptoms and these food textures as well. And number three, please try to avoid prescribing large pills to your patients, especially when you are dealing with supplements that tend to be in the form of large pills. Always try to prescribe small pills, or if needed, pills in the form of dissolvable tablets, or chewable tablets, or even liquid formulations. Now, early diagnosis is really important, because EOE, when uncontrolled, can lead to long-term complications. So we all know about the risk of esophageal strictures, and this is um, evidenced um, in a study by Ryan Warner and colleagues. Uh, where they studied their patients in the Netherlands and found that 57% had food impactions and 52% had stricture. In addition, when we are dealing with the pediatric population, there's more of an immediate complication, which is feeding dysfunction. In a study by Vince McCutter and colleagues uh, in, uh, Denv- in um, Denver, they found that 14 to 60% of their patients with EOE had feeding dysfunction. They also found that twenty one percent of their children with EOE and feeding disorders also had failure to thrive. All of these complications can have a negative impact on the quality of life of patients with EOE. So if we look again at fibrous stenosis evolution here, we could see in a nice graph the beginning um, of the EOE journey starting with EOE inflammation, which if left untreated, can lead to inflammation plus fibrosis, and eventually down the road, you could have less inflammation and more and more fibrosis. So you could be starting with treating patients with dietary or pharmacological medications, and then if left untreated, now you're dealing with esophageal dilations. Mm -hmm. This problem is um, looked at even in more detail in terms of how many years does it take to develop fibrosis? And we've seen that the problem evolves over time. So Warners and colleagues did the study again in the Netherlands of, um, that included 721 patients, 117 of whom were children. And they found the following. If you look at the graph to your left, the x axis has duration of diagnostic delay in years, the y axis has prevalence. The blue bars represent fibrotic features on endoscopy, and the green bars represent inflammatory features. You could see that as time goes by with untreated disease, you're having more and more of the fibrotic features of EOE. When we look to your right at the prevalence of strictures and food impactions, you could also see with longer and longer diagnostic delay, there's more prevalence of strictures and food impactions. Now, you might wonder next, in a sea of patients in your practices that present with abdominal pain and vomiting and failure to thrive and um, et cetera, et cetera, who do we suspect EOE? There are many features that would make you heighten your suspicion of EOE, one of which is atopic comorbidities. And again, in that one study of multicenter study that we performed that included 705 patients with EOE. We found that a large percentage of our patients had um, a one or more atopic diseases, including allergic rhinitis, asthma, atopic dermatitis, and or IgE-mediated food allergy. In addition, it is common to have more than one atopic disease in these patients. 78 of our patients reported at least one atopic disease, 48% reported having more than one, and 22% reported having three atopic conditions, including allergic rhinitis, asthma, and atopic dermatitis. When this was analyzed further, we found that history of food allergy or atopic dermatitis was associated with a significantly shorter time between symptom onset and diagnosis. Take-home message, assess for EOE when patients present with symptoms of esophageal dysfunction plus any of these atopic comorbidities. How do we diagnose EOE? According to the updated EOE diagnostic algorithm, if you have a clinical presentation suggestive of EOE and your patient undergoes an upper endoscopy with biopsies demonstrating esophageal eosinophilia, as shown by 15 or more eosinophils per high-power field, now the next step is no longer to do a therapeutic trial with a PPI or with a proton pump inhibitor to confirm EOE but simply to evaluate for non-EOE disorders that cause or potentially contribute to esophageal eosinophilia. And by that, we do not mean a whole list of diseases that you have to rule out for every patient, but simply exercise your clinical judgment depending on the specific patient scenario you have in front of you. And if you do not suspect any other diseases, then it is EOE. What are the secondary causes of esophageal eosinophilia? You could see this is a long list of diseases that you customized based on the patient in front of you. I will um, uh, point out a few common ones here, or important ones. One is gastroesophageal reflux disease. The second one is esophageal GI diseases, such as eosinophilic gastritis, or eosinophilic duodenitis with esophageal involvement, celiac disease, Crohn's disease, Hyper-eosinophilic syndrome esophageal involvement is important. Connective tissue disorders are important, among others. So what do we see on endoscopy? On endoscopy, we typically see features that are not pathognomonic but highly suspicious for EOE, examples of which on this, are on this slide. To your left is an example of some of the features, namely edema, white plaques or exudates, and longitudinal furrows. To your right, you could see a patient with EOE that has edema and rings. The problem, especially in the pediatric population, is that endoscopic features can be really subtle, therefore leading you to miss them at some point. Therefore, it is important to keep the EOE endoscopic reference score in your mind when you're evaluating a patient for EOE. And that is abbreviated by EcoHirano as ERAFs and colleagues as ERAFs. So E stands for edema, which is loss of the vascular markings of the mucosa, and this can be graded into either decreased vascular pattern or absent altogether. Rings are important to evaluate, so they could be mild, moderate, which are distinct, or severe, where you can no longer pass the scope. It's important here when you evaluate for rings to insufflate the esophagus fully before you look for that, so that you do not mistake normal felinization of the esophagus as rings. Exudates, or white plaques, and these can be um, classified as mild or severe depending on the extent that they occupy in the esophageal mucosa. Furrows, which are the vertical lines, are also graded based on their depth in the esophageal mucosa. And finally, strictures, and these can be evaluated as absent or present. Again, in the pediatric population, Up to 20% of patients with EOE can have a completely normal-looking esophagus, hence the importance of obtaining biopsies on every patient you're suspecting to have EOE, regardless of the endoscopic findings. And on biopsy, it's very easy to diagnose it. To your left is a section from a biopsy of an individual with a healthy esophagus. You could see the stratified squamous epithelium with zero eosinophils per high power field. To your right is a section of a biopsy of a patient with EOE, you could see all the eosinophils infiltrating the stratified squamous epithelium, as you can see all the way here. Now, this is not just eosinophils infiltrating the esophagus, but there are also several histological features present in EOE, such as basal zone hyperplasia, dilated intercellular spaces, and lamina propria fibrosis in some patients, to list a few. When we look at eosinophils, finding 15 or more eosinophils per high power field meets the diagnostic threshold for EoE histologically. Eosinophils like to aggregate into microabscesses and they could do superficial layering. This is the luminal part of the biopsy and this is what would look like as white exudates on the endoscopy as I've shown you in the previous slide. In addition, eosinophils can degranulate resulting in a lower count. Therefore, keep that in mind when you evaluate pathology reports on these patients. Important take-home messages regarding uh, biopsies. At least three biopsies from the distal and three biopsies from the proximal esophagus should be taken to obtain a good yield so that you do not miss the diagnosis. In addition, targeting endoscopic lesions, for example, the white exudates, increases the diagnostic yield regardless of the location of those accidents in the esophagus. The burden of EOE is not limited to symptoms and complications. Patients with EOE have psychosocial dysfunction, as shown by a study by Harris and colleagues, where they had 64 patients with EOE mean age of 7 years who received a psychosocial evaluation, where they found that 69% evidenced some form of psychosocial problems And this includes social difficulties, anxiety, sleep difficulties, depression, and school problems. In addition, when caregivers were interviewed, Henan and colleagues showed that this problem is really more pervasive. 29% of children with EOE have missed three or more school days. 20% had more than one hour per week of medical appointments. 37% reported three or more hospital visits that were required. The vast majority of caregivers needed help in the home on a daily basis. A third of the uh, responders stated that the child's EOE always impacts a caregiver's work routine and work concentration, and 26% reported having missed three or more work days due to the child's EOE. The burden also is not limited to psychosocial problems, but also it is financial. In a study by Jensen and colleagues looking at claims data analysis representative of commercially insured patients across the U.S. Among 8,000 cases of EOE in both children of adults, the median total annual cost per EOE case was around $3,000 compared to $1,000 for age- and sex-matched controls. Overall, the patients with the EOE have an estimated annual healthcare cost of as much as $1.4 billion in the United States. Now, let's hear the story behind the science, and for this, we will listen to Carter and his mother explaining their journey with Inouye.
2: When Carter was born, I started breastfeeding him. And uh, when we started table foods, um, about four months, we did the rice cereal. He was doing okay. Um, baby foods, he was doing okay. But as soon as we started um, actually going to real food, um, he really started changing. Um, He started vomiting a lot. Um, I would uh, find him in his crib and he would be covered in vomit. So he would vomit in his sleep. Um, He would vomit in the car seat all the time. I mean, this is like, we were talking like, I would say six to 12 times a day. And I didn't know what was wrong. And I was like, he's not just sick, you know, first you thought, oh, he might have a bug. Um, So I kept taking him to the doctor and I'm like, he's throwing up like all the time. And they're like, well, he's gaining weight. He's fine. And um, that was at about a year old. And um, as he kept going, um, he just stopped eating food. He started regressing. He wouldn't even eat baby food anymore. He only wanted to eat milk or drink milk. And um, but he was still throwing up all the time and I just didn't understand why. And then one day he started throwing up and he just wouldn't stop. And it was to the point where I, I wanted to like, call 911, which I'd never felt like that scared before. Um, but he was turning blue because he just was constantly like throwing up and couldn't like stop. And, um, I remember calling a friend of mine who was an emergency nurse, emergency room nurse. And she said, bring him to my emergency room right now. And so I took him as soon as I could. And, um, that doctor kind of changed our lives because he was the one that, you know, he gave him an epinephrine shot right then and there, which obviously told us he was having some sort of allergic reaction at the time. We didn't realize that, but we do now that he was highly allergic to milk. That doctor told us we needed to see a GI and um, an ENT. And I uh, couldn't see the GI for six months, um, but we made the appointment. We were able to see the ENT right away. So we call, uh, went and saw the ENT, and she was like, Yeah, something's definitely going on with him. I could tell, like, you know, not th- everything on the outside looks great, but there's just something going on on the inside. Let me do a bronchoscopy. And so she did the bronchoscopy and she told us he had polyps on his vocal cords, probably from all the vomiting. Um, He had tracheostinosis, probably from all the vomiting. And um, then she said, and he has eosinophilic esophagitis. I'm probably 99.9% sure, but he has to have a biopsy to confirm. Um, So we scheduled it out for a month later and um, got the uh, diagnosis of eosinophilic esophagitis and it changed our world. The day before he was um, supposed to go back to a get a second scope, um, he was throwing up blood. We went all the way down to San Diego because um, that's where his specialists are and um, didn't realize that we would be staying there. <laughs> um, he got admitted. Um, he had uh, a viral infection inside of his esophagus and... Um, because of that, he had to get a G-tube. And so that changed our life really quickly, really fast, um, without us knowing, and um, he was taken off all foods. There were times when he was younger, like Thanksgiving, um, when we all sit around the table, um, Carter would have his um, plate, we would put dum-dums on it, but he would grab a fork and he would pretend to eat. And he it just sometimes broke my heart, but it also made me feel like You know, he just wanted to be like us, you know. And um, But he's he's always been really good about um, sharing with people what he goes through. And um, because of that, I think everybody was very accepting,
1: and he had really good friends. We'd like to thank Carter and his mother for really sharing with us their uh, story, which was very touching, and also for all the courage they had to do that. So I'd like to summarize the burden of EOE. The burden of EoE is not limited to symptoms um, which, are, which can be exemplified by dysphagia, vomiting, food refusal, and failure to thrive. But also there's burden of, compli- of complications and comorbidities such as atopic diseases, stricture formation. There's also the psychosocial burden which can include anxiety or depression, mid-school days, social difficulties, and others. And finally, the financial burden. And that's in the form of direct costs, For example, outpatient visits, cost of endoscopies and pharmacy claims, and indirect cost in the form of missing workdays and others. Therefore, to reduce the burden, timely diagnosis is important since we could initiate, in that case, timely treatment. And that allows me to give the stage now to my colleague, Dr. Aceves, who will go over treatment for
3: EOE. Dr. Aceves. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, um, and we'll just talk about the of, um the reason for targeted treatment in EOE, and we'll start by going through the science behind the story. So pathophysiologically, um, EOE has multiple components to it. You can be atopic. Um, that leads to cellular pathology. You can have a genetic or heritability to it. Um, you can have a sex uh, or gender difference uh, within EOE with male predominance, and your environment can influence um, the EOE presentation as well with aeroallergens that can um, precipitate eosinophilia. So we really think of EOE as a type 2 or a TH2-mediated condition that's really marked by an infiltration of eosinophils into the esophagus. You uh, get more than just eosinophils, like Dr. Shahade had uh, described before. But you also get these type 2 activated lymphocytes that are called um, pathogenic effector T cells. They express GPR15. They release a number of interleukins, the classic ones being IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. And what that causes is chronic esophageal inflammation and resultant dysfunction um, of the esophagus as it tries to push the food bolus down Food antigens can clearly drive EOE, um, milk and wheat being the most common, uh, but egg and soy also doing it. That causes an alarm and release in the epithelium with things like TSLP and IL-33 being um, released. That calls in both innate and adaptive immune cells like T-cells. And then you get this um, infiltration with eosinophils and mast cells. um, And then you can have fibrosis and remodeling with a loss of barrier function that then predisposes you to remodeling and remodeling, feeding back on that loss of barrier function, and ultimately leading to eosinophilic inflammation. So we'll um, watch a little video here to go through the type 2 inflammation in EOE.
4: Eosinophilic esophagitis, or EOE, is primarily driven by underlying type 2 inflammation, characterized by immune dysregulation and epithelial barrier dysfunction. Mediators of type 2 inflammation include eosinophils, mast cells, Th2 cells that produce the cytokines IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13, ILC2s, and IgE-producing B cells. Th2 cells are a subpopulation of CD4-positive T cells, which secrete IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13 and stimulate the type 2 response. IL-4, IL-13, and IL-5 are key drivers of type 2 inflammation in EOE. IL-4 and IL-13 also contribute to the activation of mast cells and basophils, leading to the release of several inflammatory mediators. IL-4 and IL-13 drive epithelial barrier dysfunction, facilitating the entry of antigens that can worsen inflammation and increase access to allergens and pathogens across the epithelial barrier. They then propagate local inflammation, resulting in remodeling and fibrosis, such as furrows, distinct rings, edema, exudates, strictures, and increased smooth muscle contraction. IL-4, IL-13, and IL-5 also contribute to eosinophil activation and trafficking to tissues. IL-5 drives eosinophil differentiation in the bone marrow. Dupilumab is a fully human monoclonal antibody that binds to the shared alpha subunit of the IL-4 receptor and therefore inhibits IL-4 and IL-13 signaling. By inhibiting IL-4 and IL-13 signaling, type 2 inflammation is reduced, decreasing eosinophil count and improving symptoms of EOE, including difficulty swallowing, for patients.
3: So when we talk about treating to target, we this is a clinicopathologic diagnosis and you want to treat all of the clinicopathologic pieces of the disease. So you want to make the symptoms better. You want to have resolution of the histology ideally to less than 15 EOs per high power field, which are the diagnostic criteria. And then you want the endoscopic um, activity to actually uh, improve as well. So this is one approach uh, to managing EOE. First of all, you need to be sure that you have the right diagnosis. You want to rule out other causes of esophageal eosinophilia with um, gastroesophageal reflux being the one thing that's probably the most common. Once you're sure you have that that uh, diagnosis of EOE, then you want to, of course, talk to your patient and decide which route they'd want to go through. Um, We'll talk about this in more detail, but proton pump inhibitors can be considered a, a first-line therapy, as can food elimination or swallowed steroids or dupilumab. Elimination diets um, can work quite well. We usually use a 4 food elimination diet, although one food elimination of cow's milk products, so all dairy-containing products, um, can also work almost as well or as well in adults as for-food elimination. There are um, guidelines that were built jointly between the AGA and uh, Joint Task Force of Allergy, and you can find these. They were published um, in uh, 2020, and what you can see here is that PPIs can be considered one of the first-line therapies. The histologic response rate overall is 42%. Uh, they do have a long standing safety profile. They're easy to administer. We usually start with twice a day dosing for that. Topical corticosteroids also um, can be utilized. There are no formulations that are FDA approved, and so patients are mixing this or using an inhaler that they puff and swallow. It does respond, uh, does cause um, loss of eosinophilia in about 65% of patients overall. Um, and. It can have an adverse event of having esophageal candidal or um, esophageal candidiasis. You do uh, always want to start a topical corticosteroid over a systemic corticosteroid like prednisone. So again, in terms of management, you want to start with monotherapy if that is possible, um, because one intervention can often work, and since your patient's going to need an endoscopy after you initiate therapy, if you can just do one intervention, it makes your life a little bit easier than having to figure out which of multiple things you did can make it better. Of course, if you have um, a stricture, then you may need to have a dilation done of your patient. We do recommend maintenance therapy. As um, Dr. Shahade pointed out, this is a chronic disease with increasing prevalence um, you want to continue the treatment regimen that attained remission. And we would recommend that you uh, repeat that endoscopy uh, to confirm sustained remission because symptoms are not always a good surrogate marker for the degree or even the presence of inflammation um, or endoscopic abnormalities in the esophagus. There are a number of advantage and disadvantages to the standard approaches that are used for EOE. And again, this comes down to shared decision-making with your patient, and also what you think is the best intervention um, that could make them better. So proton pump inhibitors used once to twice daily. Um, there's a, a few side effects like headaches and diarrhea, but they're, uh, they can be effective, again, 42%. They tend to be lower in cost. Swallowed steroids, um, either in the form of um, a metered dose inhaler that's puffed and swallowed, or a thickened version of a budacinide suspension can be utilized. Um, Again, side effect profile is low to moderate with um, candidal esophagitis as a possibility um, happening relatively rarely. Um, It is effective and patients don't have to take anything out of their diet if that is hard for them or if you have a child, for example, that's losing weight and you're not comfortable taking foods out of their diet. And then the other option, of course, is food elimination diet. Um, You do have to constantly eliminate the food that you're avoiding, so you can't really cheat, especially around the time when you're having an endoscopy. Um, you, if you have a nutritionist or a dietitian that you can work with, that is incredibly helpful. Um, and it really it helps the patient to understand what they can and cannot eat. Um, Biologics are also a possibility for EOE, and why would you ever consider a biologic? Well, you could have a corticosteroid refractory patient. Um, You can have patients that don't tolerate a steroid. You can have patients that simply won't take a steroid. Um, There's this concept of targeting specific allergic pathways. You heard that these patients can be multiply atopic, so if you can target multiple diseases, then that could be a good choice. Um, And then there are practical benefits. For example, if somebody has a very hard time taking a medicine every single day, but they really have disease that you think needs treatment, then you can give a weekly dosing rather than a daily therapy. So dupilumab, um, as you heard in the video, is a anti-IL-4 receptor alpha blocker. It blocks the effects of both IL-4 and IL-13 by working um, to block the common chain that they use for signaling. So it's approved in the, um, in the U.S. for a number of atopic diseases, including atopic dermatitis, all the way down to the age of six months. It's approved for moderate to severe asthma um, all the way down to the age of six years. It can be, it's also approved for chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. Um, that's a fairly rare disease in kids, not something that you're probably going to run across very often and now approved in May of uh, 2022 for EOE in children that are age 12 and above. So these are the results of the dupeliumab trial. This was called the Liberty Treat Trial. And you can see what you're looking at here is the, um, the mean change in the symptoms using the DSQ, which is a, um, a, a symptom scoring tool that ma- monitors largely dysphagia. And what you're looking at um, here is that you can see the placebo response, which isn't very much, compared to dupilumab on a weekly basis. Um, and then you can see um, that every two-week dosing um, over here is not working quite as well for symptoms um, as the weekly dosing. And then there was a part A to C uh, where you actually went on to continue on dupilumab for 52 weeks. And what you can see is that if you go from placebo to DUPI, um or dupy to dupey, you have this um, prolonged resolution of the symptoms, so your patients are feeling better. Histologic remission or uh, was, was much better. Using dupilumab, you can see that here, 300 milligrams weekly works much better than placebo. Um, interestingly, 300 milligrams weekly or 300 milligrams every two weeks works for symptoms. And again, you get this nice sustained um, response in patients um, at least up to 60% uh, at 52 weeks when they go into the open-label portion of the trial. So this is the E-Rest, and it's one of the um, other components that we always look at, and that also was improved in the dupilumab studies. So um, again, it was generally well-tolerated. There were no deaths. There were some adverse events, very few severe adverse events, and very few adverse events that occurred um, that led to discontinuation. Um, the common um, AEs that happen are injection site reactions. So patients will sometimes tell you that this hurts Um, and then nasopharyngitis. There was recently a trial that Dr. Shahadi was um, intimately involved in, um, looking at dupilumab in children um, aged 1 to 11 years. Um, That had a Part A, a Part B, and a Part C, and we're all um, awaiting the full publication of these results. But in general, what we know so far is that it seems to work quite nicely in achieving um, a histologic response, um, and then, again, a change from the baseline to the uh, peak EOs following therapy. The EREFs was also um, improved. The symptoms were also improved um, significantly. And then, really interestingly and importantly, the percentile change um, of body weight for age also improved. So, overall, uh, adverse events, 79% was dupy, 91% was um, placebo, but Really, none of them that led to discontinuation of the drug. So, if you want to think about using dupeliumab, it is that it is FDA approved for the treatment of EoE. Um, the things to sort of think about if you're going to start dupeliumab, again: um, shared decision making with your patient, but also, um, you know, does your patient have multiple atopic diseases? Could you kind of hit multiple birds with a single therapy or single stone? Um, And so those could be asthma, atopic dermatitis, both of the more severe um, variety. And then, of course, patient preference. Um, Consideration for um, stepping up to dupilumab. Say you start with an elimination diet. You can't get a lot of foods in or it's not working. Um, You have difficult to treat EOE, um, not responding to topical corticosteroids. You need uh, rescue therapies like oral corticosteroids often. These are the types of patients where you should or you could consider the use of dupilumab. So, there's one more um, biologic therapy that um, is in uh, clinical trials, and that's syndacamib. It's also an anti IL 13, but rather than blocking the receptor, this actually blocks IL 13, the interleukin itself, and it inhibits the binding of IL 13 to its two receptors, IL 13 alpha 1 and alpha 2. So unlike dupilumab, which is blocking both IL-4 and IL-13, here you're blocking um, IL-13 only. And this is administered as a weekly subcutaneous injection. So the randomized control um, trial had 99 patients in it. This was an adult study, 18 to 65 years. Um, There was a 16-week treatment period, either with a low dose, which was 180, or a high dose that was 360. Uh, with a primary outcome variable of a change in the mean eosinophil count. Uh, the phase three study is currently ongoing. You can see that in terms of the mean esophageal eosinophil count, you get a decrease um, in the 180 as well as in the 360. And um, the EREF score, you can see you get a decrease um, in the 180 as well as in the 360. And in these yellow bars, you can see the placebo. Um, arm of this tri- trial, which really isn't changing much at all for histology or for um, EF score. So there are a number of other um, emerging targeted agents for eosinophilic esophagitis. That includes tezepelumab. That's an anti-TSLP. So you'll remember that TSLP is released as one of those alarmin responses from the epithelial barrier. So this would be something that could potentially um, cross- uh, could potentially treat um, or target the epithelial barrier. And then there's Volumab, which um, is an anti-KIT inhibitor that is uh, in a phase 2 trial. So there are other ongoing emerging um, targeted therapies for EOE. So the story behind the science... since diagnosis, we were always put on
2: a PPI. Um, when we started seeing the doctors in San Diego, um, he was put on the slurry, which is a mix of budesonide with, um, Splenda. He had to be on, um, oral steroid every once in a while. If he had like a big flare up, um, as far as trialing food, he was able to trial a food like one at a time, but, um, everything was a fail. Every, every single time we'd scope, it was a fail. And, um, we just kept getting disappointment after disappointment, and um, he would have to go um, f- formula only again for you know another th- three to six months before he would be able to try another food. When we started the depiliumab, he was on potato, even though it wasn't a true pass. Um, and then we stayed on that for six months with the slurry and with the PPI and um when he scoped he had his first ever like pretty much a clean scope um like the lowest numbers we've ever seen and then he um the doctor told us let's wean him off the um the slurry um and they said do you want to try like five foods at a time or three foods at a time or do you want to try one big trigger milk and we've known milk was a huge trigger for him. Plus he had the um anaphylactic reactions to it. So um we did that. Carter we asked and Carter said, I wanna do the milk. And so we tried it in the office in case any reaction happened and he um did great. And um then we scoped again and again low eosinophils on the depiliumab. So um then we got off the PPI. So currently he's only on the depiliumab, no slurry, no PPI. And he scoped recently and still it was like zero, one, and two. And so it's just been amazing. And he now has a completely open diet. For those that are newly di- diagnosed, it is definitely going to be a roller coaster of emotions. Um, you're going to have your highs and lows. Um, the best advice I could give is to definitely find your tribe, um, and find some support groups. Um, we were very lucky. Our family was very supportive. Um, they supported Carter, his friends supported him. Um, they all knew that Carter couldn't eat and they all acknowledged it and they never treated him different. Even though this disease is, you know, debilitating to your family, um, and definitely is difficult. Diagnosis, um, the more that you can make their life regular um, and normal, um, I think the better off they'll be in accepting the diagnosis. A big part of like, uh, when I was growing up was uh, being around my friends and being super close to my friends. So I'll definitely say like, get close to your friends. And like, if like they want you to try something, like reject it, and like make sure they know about your disease. And um, uh, and if somebody ever like asks you and you're not comfortable with answering it, then just say I don't like to talk about it. Um, but um, uh, and uh, make sure that your family is always there to support you.
3: Okay, so uh, in summary, EOE continues to increase in worldwide incidence and prevalence. And remember, it's a chronic disease, so the prevalence will probably keep on rising um, over time. EOE diagnostic criteria have been updated as of 2018. The PPI trial is no longer needed to make the diagnosis of EOE. The diagnosis is made um, in the settings of symptoms of esophageal dysfunction along with esophageal eosinophilia that does, uh, doesn't does have another cause, and usually endoscopic features are present, but they don't have to be, so you must uh, get the, the biopsies to, to know whether there's eosinophilia or not. Um, remember that the symptoms and eating behaviors are often different in children um, and adults, and remember um, that these patients will often compensate for their trouble swallowing or their vomiting, and they will change the textures of the foods that they eat, and so if you ask them if it's hard to swallow, they may say no, so sometimes you have to sort of press them or ask them a different way. EOE is a progressive disease, it seems to roll from inflammation to fibrosis in most, but not um, all patients. So to that um, end, then early diagnosis and ongoing therapy um, is important uh, to reduce complications. That's what our current understanding is from the literature. Targeted biologic therapy with dupilumab is now cur- uh, available currently for children that are age, or I guess adults that are age 12 and over. Um, and the current um, studies in children that are younger at 1 to 11 years of age also looks promising. And there are a number of other uh, therapies that are under study and under development right now. So hopefully there'll be a number of options for us as we move forward. So I think we have... Time for questions? Yes. Uh, thank you,
1: Dr. Savis, for a great overview here on the potential therapies for EOE. Um, and I think I would like to re-emphasize uh, what Dr. Aceves uh, stated, is that choosing a therapy for your patient is really a matter of shared decision-making. This is the longest discussion you'll have when you make the diagnosis. Go over all the treatment options, the pros and cons, and um, how to follow these patients for each therapy, the potential success rates, the potential side effects, so you could choose and individualize the therapy that's right for each patient. Um, Would you agree with that, that Dr. Esebis? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we do have a few questions from the audience. Um, So thank you for all of those who put in their questions. And we will have a few minutes to go over a few. So we apologize in advance if we don't cover all of them for the sake of respecting everyone's time. uh, I think the uh, first question here is, uh, do you still repeat an endoscopy after uh, uh, more than eight weeks uh, when you start the patient on dupilumab? And I guess the answer is absolutely. This is a treatment just like any other therapy options that you would choose where you want to follow up the patient uh, both clinically, endoscopically, and histologically to see if there's response, and especially if you have a patient that has a long-term um, disease uh, with some fibrostenosis, where the symptoms and the in endoscopy and histology don't always correlate well. So just like with other treatments, follow up the patient. When to follow up? Uh, that's a matter of debate here, I would say. Perhaps, you know, the phase three trials were done after six months of therapy. Uh, so a good um, starting point is at six months. Uh, but again, um, uh, um, it all depends on the practical considerations uh, when uh, and the clinical response when you see the patient. Um, that is, service, would you do the same in terms of follow-up endoscopies and the timing?
3: Yeah, I think that I, I agree with you. The timing we usually wait for longer when it's um, Dupilumab. You know that the standard clinical trials are two months. You know after a PPI three months topical steroid and dupilumab six months in the clinical trials. I think it's reasonable to wait for a little longer, you know, when you do the dupilumab given the data that we have, but yet absolutely want to repeat the endoscopy with the biopsy if, if your patient can go through that. Um, it's really important, as Dr. Shahadi said, because the, of the disconnect between the symptoms and the, and the inflammation that can happen. Yep. Thank you. So we also have another question, and
1: I think um, that uh, Seves, you would have expertise answering here. Given the increasing number of cases of new EOE diagnoses after oral immunotherapy, uh, should we be doing baseline soft esophageal sampling pre-OIT to understand
3: what comes first? I love that the GI people ask this question. I love it. Um, So, I mean, in a perfect world, yes, you would want to know the status of the esophagus before you start the OIT. I just don't really think that that's reasonable to, to put all patients through. So if you had a really high suspicion, I think it's super important to ask those questions about... Dysphagia. sort of look for the symptoms of esophageal dysfunction in your patient. If you have a suspicion that they may have EOE, that you either, you know, you could worsen with the OIT, then certainly I think it's very reasonable um, to do an endoscopy if your patient is willing to, to have an endoscopy done before you start uh, the OIT. Um, I think one of the things as allergists that we don't really have a handle on yet is whether the eosinophilia that, it's in, that is induced during the process of OIT is something, um, permanent or something transient the biggest re- reason why people stop doing oit is because of the onset of, of abdominal pain so sometimes i don't think we have a really great um true idea of the rates of oit currently uh eoe induced by oit um, the current literature suggests it's like three percent ish three to five percent but not entirely sure fully agree i think that um
1: Performing endoscopy, we will be super busy here since there's a lot of OIT that goes on and not many patients will agree. But um, I fully agree with you. I think a more thorough um, history for GI symptoms is really crucial. And uh, what we're seeing out there is um, not everyone's asking all the right questions. So I think um, some of it is uh, for you, please, to educate everyone who's going through those uh, trials with their patients. To dig deep into the symptoms, so they're not asking just for dysphagia, but all the behavioral feeling modifications, just for um, dysphagia, and not the non-specific symptoms such as abdominal pain, etc. So at least a thorough history and potentially considering an endoscopy accordingly prior to IT would be would be reasonable. Um, so we have a, a one last question here um, that we can take, which is if. Patients are already on a PPI and you're suspecting EOE. Do you have them stop the PPI before an endoscopy? If so, for how long? Well, this is a question that will require a much longer answer here. Uh, This is because it all depends on how the patient is feeling. So if you have a patient on PPI and their symptoms have responded pretty well, and now you're not sure was this patient an EoE patient that responded to a PPI therefore you have to keep the PPI for a long period of time as a chronic treatment or did this patient had reflux or gastroesophageal reflux disease therefore and they responded of course so now it's time for you to start weaning the the PPI as you do more reflux measures this is when you have to stop the PPI and wait at least two months or so before you repeat the endoscopy to see, was it PPI, was it EOE to start with? But now, if you have that scenario where you have a patient with symptoms that you placed on a PPI, and they're not responding, they're still having all the symptoms they started with, then it is reasonable to perform an endoscopy while the patient is on PPI, since you're looking for the reasons for these symptoms. And if it is EOE, you're going to find EOE unless, to put a wrinkle here to the answer, if there is a stricture that is really confusing your evaluation, for example, that's causing persistent dysphagia, even though the PPI reduced the inflammation, etc. So there are multiple exceptions to that general answer here, but I guess um, to summarize it, it all depends on how is the patient doing while on PPI.
3: Yep. I would, I would agree with that. I think um, the only other thing that you might want to take into consideration um, is how comfortable you are getting a potential partial response, right? You scope on that PPI and say you've got PT and eosinophils and not a lot of basils are in hyperplasia and you're not going to know if it was like a partially treated um, esophagus. So, but again, you know, that. I think it's, again, a, dis- a decision-making process with the patient and, and how they feel, as you said, um, and then making that decision of the question that you're really trying to answer with your scope. You know, are you trying to make a firm diagnosis of EOE knowing that the PPI could be treating it, or do you not have that comfort of stopping the PPI because of your patient symptoms and you're comfortable with a, a diagnosis that may not be quite as clean as it would have been had they been on no meds?
1: Great points. Thank you, Dr. Aceves. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the American Partnership for Eosinophilic Disorders. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash bjf860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi.